in John chapter 19, we'll begin reading in verse 1, John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And that's where I want to focus this morning. Behold the man. The Apostle John wrote the gospel according to John. So that we may know exactly who Jesus is, and by knowing exactly who Jesus is, and by reading these words, we may come to believe in Jesus. We may come to accept him as our Savior. We may come to place our faith in him to receive us into his kingdom. We've talked about this morning how you may get exhausted in this life. You may get tired of this place. You know, we, we remind ourselves with the old hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And sometimes you're ready for the trip to be over. Our hope and our expectation of entering into God's kingdom where we don't have the problems we have in this life is totally 100% wrapped up in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Who Jesus is, the payment he made for our sins, the redemption he freely makes available to us, and his resurrection in which he overcame the grave, bringing us eternal life and new life altogether. That is who John is demonstrating to us. And so we have to stop every now and then and assess whether or not we are learning this lesson, whether or not we are understanding this, whether or not we're growing in this. So who is Jesus? Jesus asked his apostles. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? To answer the question, I will repeat the words of Pontius Pilate. He brings Jesus out and he says, behold the man. Behold the man. Pilate spoke these words as he presented Jesus to the crowd after having flogged Jesus. That's actually a, a kind word to say. He scourged Jesus. Y'all ever watch The Passion of the Christ? That toned it down. You would not be able to handle seeing what happened to Jesus. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 52 that he, his face was so marred that he was unrecognizable as a man. After doing this to Jesus, Pilate brings him out and says, I find no fault in him. This is who, how he treats those with whom he finds no fault. This tells you how little Pilate thought of Jesus and of this whole situation. And we'll talk about that. But think about Jesus, who has just endured the punishment that is far worse than the way they would have treated their worst offenders in that day. Yet Pilate says he finds no fault in him. There's a picture here of Jesus having no fault, having committed no crime, having not even given the appearance of impropriety, taking on the punishment of the worst sinner and lawbreaker of that generation. There's a picture here of Jesus enduring the wrath of God in a way that no man can and no man could in order to satisfy God's wrath so that we could be shielded from it, so that we could walk free from it. And that's the picture you have here. Pilate treated Jesus horribly. 
mutilated him from the flogging, presented him to the crowd, finding no fault in him. And he says, behold the man, behold your king, behold the one that is the cause of our controversy for today. Behold the one that led the movement. Behold the one that, that ministered to multitudes, performed the miracles. Behold the man. And so let's behold the man. And when you behold the man, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? And we're going to look at what Pilate saw. We're going to look at what the Pharisees saw. We're going to look at what the crowd saw. We're going to look at what the disciples and the apostles saw. But then we're going to wrap up with seeing what the believers see. What Pilate saw. Pilate is in this awkward place in this story because Pilate doesn't want to be here. He didn't want the Jerusalem assignment. The Jerusalem assignment has not gone well for him. He has, he has cons consistently had trouble keeping the peace. He's in trouble with Rome because he can't keep the peace. It's a Jewish holiday. The entire town has come to Jerusalem, so this is stressful. There's crowd control to deal with. There's security to deal with. There are people who are in Jerusalem among this crowd who want to stir the crowd up. And Pilate is just hoping he gets through this weekend with no problem. And then the door opens, and this man is thrown in. And Pilate wants to know what's going on here. To Pilate, he's got to make some decisions now, and he doesn't want to make the decisions. As Pilate continues his investigation, you see that he starts to get the idea that there is something to Jesus. When Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, Pilate's like, I'm good with that. I'm going to let you go. The, people, the Pharisees would not let him go. Okay, I've got to find something else to do. And then it gets time to decide whether or not to crucify Jesus. And Pilate's like, interviewing Jesus, and this is in John chapter 19, he's like, they just said that you said that you were the son of God. Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, you said it. And Pilate's like, do you not understand? Pilate is not happy here. He wants to just put this thing to rest. Do you not understand that I have the power to put you to death? I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus says, you have no power over me except that we're given to you from above. So whoever delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now I want y'all to remember that. Because who delivered Jesus to Pilate? Oh, it's some pesky Pharisees, right? What about the people in the crowd that yell, crucify him, crucify him? Did they deliver him over? He who delivered me to you has committed the greater sin here. The Bible tells us that at this point, Pilate is trying to find a way to let Jesus go, but he can't. And so ultimately... He says, I'm just going to wash my hands of the situation and walk on. And he did wash his hands, walked off. Jesus was crucified. Pilate had a sign put over his head in three languages, king of the Jews. For many people today, this is where they are. Jesus, they're hearing about Jesus. Our evangelical efforts, certain scenarios in their lives are forcing them to make a decision about Jesus. And this is a decision that they do not want to make. I remember I, I, I Facebook too much. There was, a, there was a young lady who was on Facebook back in East Texas. And she's not a Christian. Well, she may be now. She wasn't then. But I remember scrolling through and seeing one of her posts. She says, Jesus be interfering with my chicken. Now, I don't know 
exactly what was going on there, but I can guess. In Rusk, Texas, they had a restaurant that had, the, it was this really weird deal. It's this restaurant, and in this corner is Church's Fried Chicken, and in this corner is Subway. So if you made a New Year's resolution and you're going to eat healthy and you're going to eat at Subway, you were tested every time you went to Subway because as you're walking to the Subway counter, there's the aroma of piping hot chicken from churches. Brother Bobby, it was, a, it was a tough battle every time I went in there. I can only imagine that this young lady is sitting in this place eating church's chicken and an evangelist comes up to her. Now she has to make a decision about Jesus when she really just wants to focus on eating her fried chicken. You know, the problem is that so many people know the truth about Jesus. They don't want to have to make a decision because making a decision puts everything else in their lives at risk. For many people today, they know Jesus exists. They want to look to him when they get in trouble. They may believe that he is the son of God, but since they have no fear of God, they reject him altogether. There is no fear of God before their eyes, so they reject the Lord. That's what Pilate saw. Pilate saw a situation. Pilate saw an inconvenience. Pilate saw a decision that had to be made, and it was a decision that he did not make. That is what Pilate saw. When you see Jesus, do you see a decision that you do not want to make? You know that he is the Son of God. You know that he existed. You know that what's in this Bible is true. But you don't want to make the decision. You don't want to confess your sins. You don't want to repent. You want to kind of say hi to Jesus, have Jesus bless you. But then you want to be able to go on with life as normal and not have to worry about it. Is that where you are this morning? If that's where you are, when you behold the man, you're seeing the exact same thing that Pilate did. And then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees who got all this started in the first place, ordering his arrest in the middle of the night, putting him through two sham trials before Caiaphas and Annas, Ananias, the two high priests. You see, the Pharisees were the ones that delivered Jesus to Pilate in the first place. And so as they're standing out there and Pilate brings Jesus out, they, he says, behold the man, what do the Pharisees see? I'll tell you what the Pharisees saw. The Pharisees saw an existential threat. I said it. An existential threat. What does that mean? It means a threat to their existence. A threat to their existence. The Pharisees had worked their entire lives to get to where they were at that moment. What they sought out to do was get the highest education, to build the biggest following, to sit in the biggest place of influence, to rise through the ranks, maybe even get to be high priest someday. To sit in the Sanhedrin, to have the power, to have the influence, to have the money that goes with it, the fame, the fortune, everything that goes with it. The life of a Pharisee was all about everyone knowing how great this Pharisee was and how influential he was. That was what, is, what was important to the Pharisees. And that is one thing that Jesus took issue with. That they pray in the public places so everybody can know how spiritual they are. How they make a show of giving their pocket change to the temple when you have the widow giving everything that she owns privately without any fanfare. How they would go before God and pray to God, thank you for making me a great, holy, righteous person. When it was the publican standing next to them that said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, as he smote his chest. 
and the Pharisees, they had convinced themselves that they were holy and righteous without God, that they didn't need God. And as they became holier and more righteous, they got more power, more prestige, more riches, and they could justify doing just about anything they wanted to do. The problem was when Jesus came on the scene and he preached to them the spirit of the law and not the convoluted letter that they had invented in their minds, they were just as much a sinner as everybody and they hated that. And if Jesus, being the Christ, being the Messiah, really did bring in the kingdom and throw out the Romans and usher in this new age of God's prosperity where he keeps his promises to his people, where does that leave them? Because if you have the king of kings and the Lord of lords on the throne and he is ruling, what's the Sanhedrin needed for? If God's high priest after the order of Melchizedek has arrived, then what kind of job is Caiaphas going to have in all this? Jesus, to the Pharisees, was an existential threat. All of them were threatened by the presence of Christ. In John chapter 11, verses 47 through 48, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They're all going to believe in him. They're all going to follow him. And then the Romans are going to come around and they're going to take away our nation and our place. And that's what bothered them. The Romans had already taken away their nation. But they still had a place. They still had a, a council. They still had some political power. They have a little bit of leverage in negotiating room with Rome. But yet that, that may be taken away. And that's what they're worried about here. He's going to take away our place, our prestige, our influence. But then Caiaphas speaks up in verse 49 in John chapter 11. Caiaphas was high priest that year. He said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. We're just going to sacrifice this guy so we can keep the status quo. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who were scattered about. He, Caiaphas knew why Jesus was there. He knew what the death of Jesus was going to accomplish. He knew that the goal here was to draw everybody together back to God, to bring all of the people of God into one place, into one fold. Who are All the children of God who are scattered about, he's not just talking about bringing the Jews home. All of those who will accept the Lord. Caiaphas saw the full picture and he didn't like it because he's out of a job if that happens. So they made plans to kill Jesus. To the Pharisees, Jesus was the existential threat. Jesus compared the Pharisees to tenant farmers. The Bible calls them husbandmen. People who lease a vineyard then conspire to steal the vineyard from the owner. So when the Pharisees beheld Jesus, they beheld a threat to their position. They beheld a threat to their pride. They beheld a threat to their existence as Pharisees. So when the Pharisees beheld him in this beaten state, beaten beyond human resemblance, as Isaiah 52, 14 says, it wasn't good enough for them. It wasn't good enough for them to see Jesus so badly wounded and marred that any other human would not be able to survive the injuries that he sustained. Put any other man up there, and he may still be standing, but he's not going to be standing for long 
the trauma, the shock, it's all going to take its toll. Jesus is going to die, but it wasn't good enough for them to see him beaten. It wasn't good enough for them to see him dying. They wanted to make sure he died in the worst possible way. Why? Because he was a threat to their existence. So they called out for him to be crucified. And in calling for his crucifixion, they could proclaim him accursed before God because Deuteronomy 21-23 says that anyone that is hanged on a tree is cursed. They want to be able to not only kill Jesus, but to kill his legacy and his movement too because he's a threat to them. Some folks see Christ as an existential threat. You may be thinking about today's religious leaders. You may be thinking about today's political leaders. And it is always easy to talk about the sin of others. And I could go off on how the political leaders of our world today are threatened by the existence of Jesus, by the existence of Christianity. I could talk to you today about how many religious leaders would be threatened by the existence of Jesus and the existence of true Christianity. Things that diminish emphasis on their own personal power we can talk about this but is anybody in here a politician besides me is anybody in here a religious leader no so i can talk about their sins i'll talk about my sins y'all love that like i'm facebooking this later y'all never believe what my preacher said let's talk about our sins there are folks who want to be in total control of their lives Folks who don't want Jesus to come back because it will interfere with the plans that they have for their lives. I remember sitting in a seminary classroom, and we're all in our first year. The, the shortest pathway you can take is a two-year degree. You can get a four-year degree or a master's degree. And our prophecy professor was sitting there telling us that Jesus would probably come back in the next two years. And we're like, why are we in this classroom then? I hope I get to pastor a church first. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's ridiculous. People don't want Jesus to come back before they see their kids graduate high school, before their business gets launched, before they're able to fulfill this one particular dream that they may have, whether it is playing in the NFL or whether it is seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. I don't know. But there are people that look at temporary things in this world that they find joy in, and they want the Lord to withhold his return so that they can continue to enjoy the things of this life. Let me tell you something. That is seeing Jesus as an existential threat. We're not here for the things that are in this world. We are here for the world that the Lord is bringing in. We're looking forward to that kingdom. So if I never get to see Isaac graduate high school because Jesus comes back, that means that me and Isaac are going to enter into the kingdom that much sooner. That's what we're looking forward to. Amen. I think it's amazing watching these kids grow up, watching them select career paths, uh, watching them go to college, get degrees, or maybe not go to college, maybe just find a line of work they enjoy working in and finding joy in that and finding fulfilling. That, that's an amazing thing, and that is something to take joy in, but that does not take precedent over the fact that we are looking forward to the day that we and our children and our grandchildren enter into the Lord's kingdom together. Amen. Do not make that mistake. Oftentimes in politics, we're fighting hard to save the world that we know that we forget to look forward to the world that is to come. 
Everybody thinks that the world that they lived in when they were 18, 19, 20 years old was so much better than what we have today. And if we could only go back to that day, but let me tell you something, the, the world of your 18th, 19th, and 20th birthdays may have been better than today. I'm not going to deny that, but it is not your ultimate destination. It should not be where you want to go. I grew up in the 1990s, graduated high school in 1996. I think as, an, as a society, we kind of peaked during that decade. But if you graduated high school in 1957, you'll probably tell me it was the 1950s was when our society peaked, okay? It really has a lot to do with your perspective on things. But the fact is, we're not looking forward to not, I'm not thinking any of y'all graduated in 57, okay? I'm, I'm getting some looks. I'm not calling anybody old here, okay? I'm just saying. As great as the world was then, the world we're going to enter into later is going to be so much better. Don't sit here and fight the good fight in politics hoping to save a ship that is sinking. We cannot stop the Titanic from sinking. The, the front half has already fallen off and gone under the water. We're hanging on to that last rail, us and Jack and Rose, hoping to get the piece of driftwood or, or a lifeboat. But we have the lifeboat. We have the lifeboat. We know the lifeboat's coming, right? We could elect... 100% of public officials could be elected that are Republican. You might notice some different things. You might like those different things, but it's not going to save the country. Not when we have child abuse happening the way it's happening. Not when we have human trafficking happening the way it's happening. Not when we have drugs happening the way they're happening. Not when we have identity crises happening the way they're happening. Not when people are totally lost in darkness because we are not seeing the gospel permeated throughout our society. We cannot save the world by electing Republicans. I, I like Republicans, don't get me wrong. I haven't gone liberal on you, but that's not how we're going to save the world. It's through the gospel, but even with the preaching of the gospel, the scriptures tell us that all this comes to an end, that all this gets progressively worse until the Lord returns. That's what we're looking forward to. So do not see Christ as an existential threat. If Jesus comes back tomorrow and you are a child of God, it is not a tragedy for you. It's something you're looking forward to. We all want to live a long life. Average life expectancy in the United States is 85, but it's falling. It's falling. But we all want to live a, a big life. But if the Lord calls you home at the age of 50, he's bringing you into his kingdom that much sooner. Yes, amen. Do not see Christ as an existential threat. Do not make that mistake. Let's look at what the crowd saw. Does the crowd really know what's going on here? In any given historical event, has the crowd ever known what's going on? No. What does the crowd see? Pilate brings Jesus out, puts him on display. Behold the man. What do they see? They see a show. The crowd did not know Jesus, though they very likely knew about Jesus. They had likely seen the miracles. They followed Jesus as long as he was turning water into wine and multiplying the bread to feed 5,000 when Jesus told them that the free meals were over, they quit following Jesus. They didn't believe in him as Savior or Messiah, and they were more than willing to follow the crowd and the Pharisees' leadership in calling out to crucify him. Today, people are aware that there was a man known as Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus Christ, or Christ the Lord, or Jesus the Savior, but they don't really know who he is, and they don't really know what he did. They'll go to the mega churches, 
to have an amazing worship experience, not judging the mega churches. That pastor at that church that Sunday may have preached as solid of a gospel message as anyone has ever heard, but they were there for the show. And when they saw the preaching, they saw the show. When the songs were played and the songs were sung, that was a show. That's what the crowd saw. They saw a show. Preaching is entertainment for some people. Y'all, that, that may be a foreign concept to y'all, or y'all are like, Leland, you are not entertaining. I'm not trying to claim that I am. But there are some people that find entertainment in preaching. They find entertainment maybe in the tickling years and this preacher going to tell you how to get rich, or maybe in the guy that wants to scream about the sin of others. I had a few church members at a prior church that I pastored come to me and they, they asked me, Pastor, why aren't you preaching about them homosexuals more? And I said, brethren, I didn't realize y'all were struggling with this issue, but if this is an issue we're struggling with as a church, I will, I will change course. No, 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 but we want to know that, I'm like, no, I'm here to feed y'all. I'm here to speak to your spiritual condition. Not to tell you how bad them people out there are. That's what Pharisees do. Pharisees look at the people out there and go, oh, they're pretty bad. Glad we're not like that. We're different. We're different. The crowd came and they saw a show. When they beheld Jesus, they beheld a show. The crowd today knows Jesus exists. He is just another historical figure. He is a literary icon. He is referenced in literature. He is referenced in culture. But they still reject him because they do not know him as Savior. They behold the man, but all they see is a show. Let's see what the disciples saw. Where are the disciples? In this story, when Jesus is on trial and Pilate brings Jesus out and says, Behold the man, where are his disciples? Where are the apostles? They're not there. They were there the night before when Jesus was arrested and an army showed up and they scattered. Let's not judge them. Let's not judge them. If stormtroopers came into this building right now and arrested me and said that y'all could leave, where are y'all going? Y'all are leaving. Are, and I'd be okay with that. I'd be like, go. Because <laughs> that's what Jesus said. He said, you can take me if you let these go free. Stormtroopers come in here and y'all have the opportunity to run away. Run away. Where are the disciples? The disciples, I'm not challenging their faith. They knew Jesus was the Christ. They, they knew he was the Messiah. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the only begotten Son of God. They had faith in him. They trusted him. They're not there in this particular situation, but they're not turning their backs on him. They're not going back to Galilee. They're not saying, well, I guess it's over now. They're downtrodden, they're disillusioned, they're confused. The disciples at this point, they saw what they thought was going to happen was not going to happen. So they're disillusioned. The disciples knew Jesus was the Christ, but they were expecting him to go into Jerusalem, to assume the throne, to bring in the kingdom. In fact, they never lost that expectation. In Acts chapter 1, when he's on the, when he's on the mount... They, and he's about to ascend to be at the right hand of the Father. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Is this, is this it? Is this when we're going to do this? And Jesus says, not yet. Y'all go back to Jerusalem. Wait till you're, 
given power from on high, and you're going to be witnesses to me. They're expecting him to assume the throne and to bring in the everlasting kingdom, and now Jesus has been arrested. He has been flogged beyond recognition. And it looks like he's going to be put to death. They don't know what's going to happen next. They are disillusioned and they are confused. While we behold Jesus, if we forget the eternal perspective of things, we can too become disillusioned whether or not our faith is strong. If your expectation is that we can go throughout all the world and preach the gospel and the world will repent and we'll have this utopian society emerge from that, if your expectation is that we can go through the streets of America and preach the gospel and America will return to its golden age, whatever golden age that is in your mind, and we go about doing this, we can find ourselves disillusioned when the world continues to reject the Lord, when the world continues to abound deeper and deeper into sin. We need to remember the eternal perspective. Scripture tells us outright that in the latter days, perilous times will come. That men will become lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That the hearts of many will wax cold. That people will be without natural affection. Natural affection. We had a child recently starve to death in the custody of this child's mother. We have seen multiple occasions in our culture of kids just being locked away in rooms and left there to starve to death. You're not even allowed to do that to a dog. And people don't do that to dogs for the most part. Or without natural affection. It's going to continue to get worse. You're going to, Fox News, I mean the shock factor is just not going to be there anymore. And it's probably not there now. A mass shooting, another one of those. A child abandoned and neglected, another one of those. Another human trafficking ring. It's just not going to shock us anymore because that's how cold society's going to be. And if our expectation is that we can correct all that, we're going to be disillusioned. We need to keep the eternal perspective. All this is building toward the ultimate judgment day when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom. Let's look at what the believers see. Nicodemus, I don't know if he's in the crowd or not, but he's aware of what's going on because when Jesus is crucified, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that go to get the body. Nicodemus knows what he's seeing. Nicodemus understands this. Nicodemus pled on behalf of the Lord during the trials unsuccessfully, but he knows what he's seeing. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, who do you see at his feet? You see Mary, his mother. You see Mary Madeline. You see Salome, y'all don't know a whole lot about her, but she's there and she's important. I don't know a whole lot about her, but she's there and she's important. And you see John, the apostle. What they were seeing, and John had this special connection, this special insight to know what was happening here. What they're seeing is the gospel being carried out. They're seeing their sins being paid for. They're seeing their redemption being sealed, however heartbreaking it was to see Jesus on that cross. And you can mourn the suffering our Lord went through while maintaining faith in what that suffering accomplished. You can mourn the passing of a loved one while celebrating their entry into heaven. When we today behold Christ, we should see our, return, our eternal redemption. We should cling to that 
regardless of how life goes in this world. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 23 to hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. To hold fast, to cling tightly to the profession of your faith, to cling tightly to your faith, your belief in the redemption that has come through Christ Jesus. Because he is faithful, he will deliver on that redemption. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I'd love to live to be 85. I'd love to see grandkids and great-grandkids. I hear really great things about those little creatures. All right? I hear lots of great things about how joyful it is to be a, a, a grandparent. And I think I'd be a pretty good grandparent. I already try to spoil my kids. I mean, if, Dad, can we have ice cream? Yes. Can we go out to Whataburger tonight? Well, it's a church night. Be home at 1030. Dad, we're out at Whataburger. Can we stay out till 11? Uh, yeah, sure, fine. You know, I can only imagine what I'm going to do to my kids, to my grandkids. Um, Grandpa. Yeah, you're right, little grandson. We ought to go get Happy Meals again. I mean, I could, I could see myself doing that. I mean, you know, I may not live to be there. I may not live to make it there. Jesus may come back first. Jesus may come back first. But regardless, I know that he's faithful that promised. So that when I close my eyes to this life, I'm opening my eyes to his kingdom. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that in a way that I couldn't have comprehended 25 years ago. 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm looking forward to that. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering because he, he is faithful, that promise. He is faithful to deliver on that eternal salvation. So everything you're going through right now, all the heartaches, all the headaches, all the pain and, 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 and trauma, you're going to be delivered from that. He is faithful, that promise. Hold fast to your faith without wavering, that profession of that faith. And so Hebrews goes and it tells us, to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful at promise. And let us consider one another. This is to get to know each other, to get to know each other fully, to fully observe each other. This is why I like hearing your stories. So you're telling me a story about something that happened 10 years ago, you think you're boring me. You're not. I'm, I'm enjoying this. Let us consider one another, get to know each other, that we may encourage each other into love and to good works. In verse 25 in Hebrews chapter 10, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Yes. as the manner of some is, but so much the more as we see the day approaching. I'm not preaching about how simple it was that you missed church last Sunday. I don't know if anybody missed church last Sunday, but I'm not, that's not the direction I'm going. What I'm talking about, the word forsake means to turn your back on. It means to quit. It means I don't have to go to church because I am the church. It's, it's that attitude. And that's the manner of some. But the Lord wants us gathering together so that we can find this encouragement in each other. And the closer we get to that day when he returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, we need to be getting together to encourage each other all the more. Jessica has the ladies group, the French fry group. That is such a clever name. The French fry group that gets together on Tuesday night. She doesn't preach. She sometimes teaches. Um, but mainly, when you, it's the ladies coming together, to consider one another, to get to know each other, to encourage each other, to, prom to promote and encourage each other unto love and good works. And sometimes they do some pretty cool things like that and, and, and some of the decor. And sometimes they make crafts, but that's what they do on Tuesday nights. So that's something that I would encourage the ladies of this church to, to be involved in. Wednesday nights we have dinner together, sometimes on time, sometimes not. But we always have Bible study. And I... It's something, that, it's something that has an effect on me. I hope it has an effect on you. We should be getting together on Wednesday nights. The men of the church ought to be looking at ways we can start getting together as men and, and finding that same level of fellowship 
that the ladies are cultivating. But all that is only beneficial if we behold the man. If we go to church because we got to go to church, we go to the ladies' meeting because I have to go to the ladies' meeting because Jessica will call me if I don't. If we go to Wednesday night because, well, somebody's got to show up and help them clean up after those kids eat those sandwiches. If it becomes an obligation, well, we've got to go to church. You're going to miss the blessing. The blessing is in the why. Behold the man. When you behold Jesus, what do you see? If you see a decision that needs to be made, then make that decision. If you see a threat, repent. If you see a show, look at what's actually being said and taught. If you see broken dreams, reorient your vision on those things that are eternal. When you behold the man, you need to see your salvation and your Savior.